Welcome to Design for AI. This podcast is here to help define the space where machine learning intersects with UX, where we talk to experts and discuss topics around designing a better AI. The music is by Roll Music. I'm your host, Mark Bailey. Let's get started. So today we'll be talking with John C. Thomas. He is a AI researcher, and he's also written some books based on his familiarity with the field. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Mark. Nice to be here. Thanks for inviting me. All right. I'll just let you introduce yourself. My name's John C. Thomas. I have worked in the fields of cognitive computing and artificial intelligence and human-computer interaction for quite a while. My first job after graduate school at the University of Michigan in what would now be called cognitive psychology, but was called experimental psychology back then, My first job was actually a psychology project that I managed on the psychology of aging. And in the process of doing that, I learned to be a pretty good amateur programmer, which is part of why I got a job at IBM Research in the early 70s to try to make computers easier for people to understand and use. And in that process, I also worked in natural language processing and speech synthesis. Um, After about a dozen years at IBM Research, I had an opportunity to start an artificial intelligence lab, which I managed for a dozen years at 9X, which was one of the regional operating companies. It's since become Verizon. And then I went back to IBM Research for another dozen years, again, working in knowledge management the business uses of stories and storytelling, and high-performance tools, and also uh, what came to be called cognitive computing by IBM. Oh, and so what got you interested in the artificial intelligence? Well, I think I've been interested in it for a very long time. In high school, for example, uh, which was many years ago, <laughs> a friend and I thought, quite naively, as it turns out, that we could build a translation machine by simply putting in dictionaries and and grammar rules for different languages. And as you know, that translation process turned out to be much harder than we anticipated and, and even people far more knowledgeable than we were as high school students anticipated. Yeah, that that, uh, that led to the second AI winter, I think. is Right. <laughs> And when I, when I went to graduate school, I wasn't really sure exactly what kind of approach to psychology I wanted to do. But I thought, by analogy to a TV, right? If you had a television and you came from some society where there were no TVs and you tried to understand it, how much understanding would you get by taking a TV and putting it in a centrifuge and blending all the parts and then trying to take them and, and figure out how much glass there was and how much steel there was. I don't think you'd learn much about how TV works. Similarly, if you put probes in, I mean, you might find out something, or you could do experiments. But even with a, with a machine that only has a few internal states, as few as five states, it's very difficult to figure out what's going on by only looking at inputs and outputs. Those are kind of analogies to some of the approaches of psychology that were popular back when I started. And I decided a better approach would be to try to build a mind using computers, and that would 
allow me to really understand some of the issues that are involved in that. And I, I still think that that's a great sort of side benefit of, of doing research in AI. We understand now that a lot of what human beings do when they process information, just walk through the world, is much more difficult problems than we understood 50 years ago. There's a lot more in, in just doing daily activities and the flexibility that that requires than we first anticipated. So that's how I got in, in interested. And of course, when I went to graduate school, I immediately re- began to realize that many people had also taken this approach. So, I mean, definitely, I mean, while you were running the AI lab there at 9X, uh, can you just kind of walk through like how your process was of how you made sure that the uh, machine learning models uh, were helping the customer as opposed to just being stuck on the technology side of it? Well, at first, uh, we made a lot of mistakes. So, for example, the areas that uh, I focused on initially were expert systems and speech recognition and machine learning and intelligent human interfaces. So, for example, in machine vision, New York Telephone often had people that uh, looked at courtesy amount checks. The courtesy amount is the amount that's written in numbers, and they wanted to verify that, and they had a whole bunch of people doing this by hand. So we could save a lot of money by having uh, an artificial intelligence system just double-check that courtesy amount. We began by having a tablet in our laboratory, and we had people you know, hand print numbers and so forth, and we created a big data set for training. And it worked quite well. Um, we, were, we were impressed with ourselves. We got very good recognition. Then we decided to have a, a demo of this during when the executives came in. And they came into the laboratory, and the whole thing failed miserably we found out that the reason it failed miserably was that typically in our laboratory, which was about the size of a regular living room or dining room, there were only two or three people in there. And all the training data was collected under those illumination conditions. When we had the laboratory filled with 40 or 50 people, instead, it was very crowded and the illumination conditions changed. A human observer just naturally ignores that. You're just used to that because of going through life, and you're not that sensitive to the illumination conditions. But it completely, um, through the speech recognition, I mean the uh, machine vision recognition off, all the training data had been in a lighter room than the demo, and that's what caused the failure. So that's just one example. There are also social effects that we looked at, so that we discovered. So, for example, when we built some of our first expert systems, it meant that the people could, the managers could accomplish the same amount of work with fewer people. To save money for the company seems like a great idea. And the workers were not concerned. They had a good union. They were not concerned because they figured they'd get another job if they lost that particular job. But the managers, it turned out, were very concerned because their status depended on how many people reported to them. 
And so we unexpectedly ran into that kind of, uh, you know, blowback or resistance from the management, even though it would make them more efficient, save money for the company and so on. So I began to see from this and from other similar instances that it was very important to take into account the, the whole social and political structure in order for these projects to really be successful. All right. Yeah, so basically the managers were just trying to build up their little fiefdoms? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, actually that brings up a good question. Um, what metrics have you found to be the most helpful uh, for when you are trying to um, design these uh, AI systems? Well, I'd say that that metrics are important, um, but probably prerequisite to that is trying to understand who all the stakeholders are. And it's very easy to miss some of them if you're not careful. So in, it, we uh, developed a what we called a voice dialing project. That I mean, this seems very primitive now, but at that time it wasn't so you could you could go to your phone and you could say mark bailey for example and it would automatically dial that person's number it would recognize who you said from that finite list not from everybody in the universe and it would dial that number so hands free dialing was the application and we did do some marketing studies and so forth that showed that there were a certain segment of customers that would find this of great use because their job required them to be using their hands and eyes. Um, in some cases, because of accessibility issues and, and so on. But when we went to I- install the second uh, instance of this, the person who was in charge of that central office said, no, 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 no. I'm not going to have anything in my office unless you have your documentation in this AT&T format. So we said, okay. So we had to redo all our documentation in the AT&T format. And then the lawyers got wind of it and said, wait a minute, wait a minute. We're a separate company now. You can't just use AT&T format. It's copyrighted. So it wasn't technical issues that (laughs) stood in our way initially, but trying to understand these. And of course, the earlier in the process that you understand who all your stakeholders are, then you can come up with a metric that's more all-encompassing and you don't accidentally leave out part of the equation. Yeah, no, I have the same problems. In some cases, uh, I I do use um, subjective metrics too, such as how people like the product. Um, In many cases, People today are what might be called discretionary users. So they don't have to use the technology. In the early days of, of human-computer interaction, a lot of the there was only one application that would do the job. It was developed in-house. And so people pretty much had to use that in order to do their job. Now a lot of things have many, many possible ways to do it. And so it's important that people enjoy the process as well as have a productive outcome. Um, so that just sounds like there's always some unexpected roadblocks. Is there anything else like that that would be that you weren't expecting to be standing in your way? Well, uh, another example that comes from machine vision, we developed that technology using a combination of machine learning, neural network 
kind of things and also expert systems for some of it. <clears throat> um, and we got some contracts with the U.S. Post Office and Blue Cross Blue Shield of New York and other places that were filling out forms. IRS was one we had kind of on the hook there. It looked very promising. The first issue that we ran into was an expectation issue with the marketing people inside the company. They wanted very much for us to have a boxed product, shrink-wrapped software that could be sold in the thousands. And you ship this to the customer, they take it out of the box, they put it in, and it works. The technology really wasn't like that at the time. We had to, because of the issues like what I said before about how sensitive it is to illumination and so forth, we had to have experts from the laboratory go out into the field and adjust the parameters to the particularities of that situation. So the technology was in one state, and we, we never really lied about how robust it was, but somehow the marketing people saw that if we could shrink-wrap this, we would make a much higher profit margin. And so they wanted us to do something that was not technically possible at that point, and that's technology's evolution. That's definitely still a problem now. Yeah. And then the final thing was, you know, e even after we solved all those problems, 9X, the company, um, had a trade with the, with the Justice Department. Remember, they had been spun off from AT&T, and 9X wanted to get back into the long-distance business. So they made an agreement with the Justice Department that, yes, they could get back in the long-distance business, but in return, they could only sell new technologies with, a, at most, a 20% markup. And they had to release these technologies to competitors. So... At that point, actually, most of science and technology was disbanded. <clears throat> um, if you can only charge a 20% markup on your successes, on your technical successes, then it doesn't really make sense to economically to do a lot of avant-garde research when you have to give it to your competitors anyway. So the point is, what killed the, uh, a lot of the AI research that we did was nothing to do with the technology or even satisfying the customers, but it had to do with business decisions uh, in the company that were, you know, far above our level. Um, so I'm curious, introducing what the limitations are of the artificial intelligence. Did you find any way to have an easy way of introducing the limitations of the AI so that people didn't too high of expectations? It's a very, very tricky thing because on the one hand, if you oversell, there's a lot of dangers we just talked about. On the other hand, if you undersell, then you don't get any funding. <laughs> so you have, to, you have to find a place where there's a long path, right? So that there's incremental value, even from something very simple, the the internal or external customer gains some value, and then you add to it, and you add to it, and you have a place to push the tech. 
So, for example, in, in speech recognition, as I said, we started out with voice dialing. So th they only had to, uh, the speech recognition only had to recognize or differentiate among the different names within your phone directory. Not everybody in the white pages. That would have been totally beyond the state of the art at that point. But if you've only got 20 people on speed dial, unless you happen to have somebody like Mark Bailey and Mark Balenson in your phone directory, it's, it's going to do a pretty good job on differentiating them, in, typically. And we uh, also, as a part of that, typically have a confirmation step. So if the, if the wrong name comes up, you can easily exit that, try it again, or even, if necessary, type in the number or fall back on saying the numbers. Now that you've moved into more of the consulting domain, what have you noticed as far as the differences uh, since there isn't, I mean, there's definitely isn't that much of a run-up uh, or, you know, there's not as long of a runway um, when you're working as a consultant. Uh, so what, you know, how are the differences in the AI sphere uh, for the researcher versus the consultant? As a researcher, I worked at 9X for a long time, so I had some sort of credibility built up, at least after the first few years. And I found it, in some ways, easier to convince people about the both the benefits and the limitations. As a consultant, it, it's, it's much more variable. Um, yes, you have the advantage of... of being an outside consultant, so people maybe pay attention to what you say, but at the same time, you have almost no ability to change the business model or make people go back and rethink the requirements documentation and, and so forth. So it, it can be frustrating. For example, I was on one consulting call and they asked me, who makes the decision about which projects will go forward in IBM research? So I began to answer that question, and after about five minutes, somebody said, so you don't actually know who makes the decision. They assumed that there was one person who would decide on all the IBM research projects, and I found it very difficult in a short conversation to dissuade them from that preconception, you know, it's much more fluid and ambiguous, as you know, in research. I mean, yeah, I suppose theoretically the head of research could dictate everything, but they obviously don't do that because that would be stupid. So after working in AI for so many years, you've shifted into uh, writing to try and warn people about some of the problems. Um, so I'm curious, like, what uh, prompted that shift? I think partly it's because when you're involved in a project, you know, your whole mind is taken up in kind of a narrow way about trying to make it successful. You know, there's technical aspects, there's social aspects, but you kind of just assume that the project itself, if, if it's funded and if it's not overtly something like, you know, how can we destroy humanity or something, then it's very easy to just go forward and try to make that a success. Once you're retired, 
then you tend to think of things in a little bit more abstract way and, and see things in sort of broader perspectives. <clears throat> so, for example, one of the things that's touched on in the book is that human activity has both an intrinsic and an extrinsic value. If you're cooking an omelet, for example, you might actually enjoy the process of thinking about how to do it and the feel of it and the smell of it and the tasting of it and balancing of it, and you end up with an omelet. Now, if you make a computer program that that does that same thing, makes an omelet, there's no evidence... Some people would disagree, but I I don't think there's any evidence or any reason to believe that the AI program that make or the robotic program that makes the omelet feels anything like they don't necessarily smell the omelet cooking and enjoy that or get pleasure out of the fact that they've done something and accomplished something. In a corporate setting, which most of us find ourselves in one way or another, you're trying to be efficient and effective. And so we can build a robot or an AI program that replaces the human being in terms of the extrinsic value. It does the same things with no sick days and faster and perhaps more accurately. But there's no value to the AI system itself. And I think we need to realize that some jobs are pleasurable to people in and of themselves. There's a value there. If we replaced everything and AI did everything and human beings just sat with folded arms, there's a sci-fi story like that, um, it wouldn't necessarily be that interesting for human beings to just be a consumer of everything. At least I I feel that way right now. Maybe humans 500 years from now will be perfectly happy to just sit in the matrix, you know? (laughs) Yeah, no, I, I I agree with you. I don't think we have, um, well, so I guess the definition is uh, AGI, the artificial general intelligence, versus the narrow AI that we have now. I don't think we're that far yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, actually, so that's a good question. Um, would, how do you split up uh, the different versions of AI or, um, you know, in your writing? Uh, do you go for those two main versions that I've heard described most places, or do you have uh, further gradations? Well, the other one, that those two are main ones. Some of the chapters in Turing's Nightmares take another path where the emphasis is on augmented intelligence. Um, the inventor of the mouse, Doug Engelbart, talked about this too, the idea of using artificial intelligence techniques mainly to make people more intelligent, more aware, more wise, more self-reflective, and, and so on. And in some cases, you, you can the same research can be implemented in different ways. So you could imagine something that automatically fixes your... <laughs> typing errors, and as you know, the current state of that is that you sometimes get hilarious results if it tries to do that. But you could also imagine using AI-type technology to understand what kinds of typing errors I'm, 
I'm likely to make and what kinds of spelling errors I'm likely to make and to train me to be a better speller. So you're using AI techniques in order to make me a better thinker, better processor, whatever. And, of course, spelling is a fairly low-level activity, but you can imagine that for a lot of different things. You actually use the techniques to make the person a better thinker. Um, the geometry tutor and the Lisp tutor that were developed by John Anderson, for example, at Carnegie Mellon were very, very good in, in what they did. And so you were saying uh, when you were a consultant, you know, you don't have uh, control of how to get people to think about the right things up front. So I'm curious, what should people be thinking about as far as like the ethical things should they be thinking about when the project is designed? I think one of the most important things is, is to take a very wide view of who the stakeholders are and, and try to uh, not only take one scenario and operationalize it and figure out metrics, as you mentioned earlier, but to come up with alternative scenarios. I think by thinking through alternative scenarios, you're more likely to think about some of the edge cases that might not otherwise be there. The other thing is to always have in mind that there are things you haven't thought of, to, to have a degree of humility about the design. And that's a general problem with technology, not just, not just AI. But you think of all the things you've thought of, and you put a lot of time and effort into it. And so there, but there are always things that you haven't thought of. And I think the a huge mistake you make is to think because you've spent a lot of time and asked maybe even other experts what's going to happen and how this might play out and so forth, that you've covered all the cases. You will never cover all the cases. So there has to be some human oversight, some social processes of rethinking that and, and having a system that's flexible, that doesn't imagine that everything's perfect. Well, I, let me give you an example from something very, very simple, but it illustrates the point. I went as an undergraduate to Case Western Reserve, and I joined their alumni association and so on their website. They have a list of colleges where you might, or graduate schools that you might go to. And they have a pull-down list. Well, the pull-down list has thousands of items. As you, because there are thousands of different educational institutions. I couldn't find the University of Michigan. I didn't know if it would be under Michigan or University of Michigan or U of M or exactly what, but it was nowhere there. So they had actually left off a, a major institution. And even if they had put it there, colleges go out of business and new ones form and they change their names and they merge. So the people that had made this pull-down list had assumed that they had somehow gotten a list, a, a very complete list that was unchanging for all time and then designed an interface that built in that assumption. So there was no way for me to type in another answer, right? Other, University of Michigan. Have you um, noticed any other heuristics that, uh, like for artificial intelligence, that, you know, just to get it to work with, the, I, I guess the best way, the best term would be the human condition. Seeing people 
going and seeing the user, potential users and other stakeholders in their real environment, I think is is something that we think of in in human computer interaction field or user experience field, but it's really for anything in AI there at some point there's going to be stakeholders and you really need to understand what their <clears throat> world is like um, in order to do a good job of designing that you're just not going to do it by having managers tell you how their people operate, for example, which is also a common way of doing it because, you know, things change and the people that actually do the work often have various workarounds that need to be thought about in, in the design. So, for instance, uh, I remember an example where a system was all handwritten and they had replaced this with a computerized system. But again, there were certain fields that were data checked for having the right kind of data. So in the old paper system, if something was to be delivered to a ship where they had the address, they would handwrite a note that said, you know, this is a ship. If you want to know where the ship is at any particular time, you'll have to call this person and they can put you in charge with a quartermaster who will eventually, you can figure out a way to deliver this to this ship because it'll be in different places at different times. But in the computerized version of this, there was just an address field. So if you started to type in all this gobbledygook about, well, be sure to call the quartermaster, here's his phone number, it would just reject it, <laughs> ask you, you put in an illegal address, put in a correct address. And, you know, people found, in fact, that they had to do everything twice. They had to do it on the computer system and do the paper system in order to get their work done. That's not really high-level AI, but the same kind of thing <clears throat> happens as long as we don't have artificial general intelligence, you know. I mean, the same thing's happening right now with conversational UI, where they try and reduce the uh, the wait times by talking to, you know, an AI robot or whatever. And then, of course, they can't answer the questions, so you end up talking to a human anyway. <laughs> so it's <laughs> the same issues, different format. Yeah. All right. Um, is there any other uh, ethics that you've uh, come across or that you feel is important, um, either that we need to program into the AI or that we need to think of when developing the AI? Well, I, I have a chapter actually in here that, that deals with the issue of prejudice, you know, and in, this is fiction, obviously, science fiction, but it relates to a, <clears throat> a real problem, which is that in this particular case, the AI system ended up evolving a kind of circular logic. <clears throat> so it decides that people are terrorists based on their religion, and it knows they're terrorists because it interprets what they say with a an eye to proving that they're terrorists. So when they say when a so-called terrorist says something like, you know, we need to abort the program, it sees the word abort and it takes that as further evidence that it's a violent sect, right? 
or if it says we need to kill this process, it interprets that as killing in the sense of murder. And the reason it knows that is because it's prejudice, but it's prejudice is continually being updated by over-interpreting or wrongly interpreting, let's say, communications. And the person then tries to tries to bring this up to his superiors, but of course they don't they don't want to, you know, shake the boat and so forth. So they uh, kind of tell them not to not to shake the you know, they don't, they don't want to have their revenue stream interrupted and so forth by dealing with this. And I think in general, the, the, the real, I, I'm not concerned anywhere within my lifetime that computers are suddenly going to wake up one day and say, oh, let's get rid of all the people, you know, they're superfluous. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it, it seems kind of wild, but I have a scenario or two like that too. But I think much more likely is that it's used as a tool of oppression or a tool of psychological manipulation, you know, uh, especially when combined. Data bias is already a problem. Yeah, I mean, exactly. And and when combined with uh, being able to read your facial expressions and being able to look at big data, it it's, could be easily able to, well, I won't say easily, but I, I can sort of foresee a time when it's used primarily to manipulate people. And, um, you know, large corporations have done some pretty untenable things in the last, well, maybe since they've existed, I don't know. But, but they, <laughs> they, they tell lies and, and they have clever and clever ways to, of, of making those lies seem like the truth. And AI is going to be a great tool for that. Yeah. All right. Well, that's all the time that we have for today. Uh, so if people want to get a hold of you, how can they contact you? Um, well, uh, they'd be welcome to send me email at truthtable at AOL.com. That's spelled T-R-U-T-H-T-A-B-L-E at AOL.com. All right. And is there anything that you're working on now or that, that uh, will soon be released? Ah, uh, I've been working on something which is related to some of the issues that we talked about. It's a pattern language for collaboration and teamwork. And if you're familiar with pattern language, that comes from uh, originally from Christopher Alexander. He applied it to architecture and city planning, but it the idea of a pattern language has been used by object-oriented programming community quite a bit. The object-oriented programming community has found it very helpful as a, as a way of sharing information. The pattern is sort of a general problem that occurs quite often and then a named solution for that. And that's what I'm trying to do with collaboration too. Okay, and we'll go ahead and put a link to that in the show notes as well. So is there any uh, interesting events or things that are coming out that uh, in the AI or uh, machine learning space? Deep fake videos. There is a, a scenario about that in Turing's Nightmares. It's not about politicians, but it's just about people being fooled about what's happening right in front of them. So if people did want to read uh, Turing Nightmares, um, where would they be able to find that? You can find uh, Turing's Nightmares on, on Amazon. There's some Easter eggs in there, too, so watch for that. <laughs> Good to hear. All right, well, thank you very much for your time, John, and uh, I hope to talk to you again. Great. Thanks, Mark. Take care. 
And again, a big thank you for John coming on the podcast. And if you'd like to see what I'm up to, you can find me on Twitter at Design for AI. Thank you again. And remember, with how powerful AI is, let's design it to be usable for everyone. Thank you. Thank you.